Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Our show is sponsored by Moo, which makes things that help you stand out and look great. Moo has a new line of business cards, Moo Letterpress, that combines classic craftsmanship and modern technology. I love that combination. Learn more at Moo.com. And if the observatory were Sesame Street, this episode would also be sponsored by the letter M. Since most of the things we're going to talk about today start with M, beginning with Milan, where you just came from, Michael. You were there for the Milan Expo, which is a kind of a world's fair, or maybe more like a month, a five-month-long design conference. How was it? It was marvelous. Uh, <laughs> mind-blowingly marvelous? Mind-blowing, mind-blowingly marvelously marvelous. No, it was, uh, it was really um, fascinating. I... Uh, confess I've never been to a um, an expo or World's Fair before, and I've always been really, really fascinated by them. And uh, the reason I was in Milan was that I had a hand in doing the graphics for the American Pavilion uh, that was designed by my friend, the architect Jim Bieber. And uh, I think this was a special sort of expo because the theme, the theme of the entire expo was food. They have different American chefs going in and out of the American Pavilion, and they had Mario Batali there uh, this week, along with Michelle Obama. And so there are two more M's for you if you really want to keep running the uh, table on this theme. But it was a, uh, uh, it's, it's been quite a, um, a big deal. They're completely thronged, very, very hot. And as you uh, observed, it's a... Uh, a design conference as well, where the delegations are all sort of uh, represented by uh, these amazing pavilions. And so there were lots of uh, interesting takes on how you could represent a country or how you could represent a, um, a particular theme. And the American food theme kind of had has two big counterpoints. One is a, a, a really startlingly successful vertical farm that runs up uh, one whole side of the building where all these different kinds of uh, plant and vegetable types are growing indeed vertically on one wall of the pavilion. And then in an adjacent parking lot is a continuous ongoing kind of food truck celebration where different um, American food uh, genres get represented. So the idea was that each pavilion was representative of its cultural kind of um, culinary um, yes, yeah, yeah. And and each one sort of challenged to figure out what the kind of coolest way to, um, uh, the most progressive way to do it. The American one is seen American Food 2.0, so it's supposed to go far. It's supposed to really get into kind of local vor ideas, uh, particularly the idea of America as representing a place where a lot of different international traditions have collided together. Each one of the pavilions then both kind of had this dual challenge to represent itself in a kind of quintessential sense, you know, deliver exactly what you'd expect. Hence, you do get hamburgers at uh, the American one. And I'm, I would be disappointed if I didn't get a, um, you know, a Belgian waffle, I guess, at the Belgian one, which and I believe Belgian waffles were introduced to America, at least, at the 1964 World's Fair in New York, as I recall. Were you ever, so, you ever uh, go to a World's Fair before? No, I never did. Uh, did you? I did. I went to Expo 6. 67 in Montreal, which is embarrassing to actually admit that I was alive at that moment in time, which makes me very old. But um, I have a great picture I found of myself recently standing there. I was six years old. And my father, who is a collector of prints and posters having to do with the history of pharmacy and medicine and had a great interest, has always had a great interest in political caricature, had an exhibit there called Pharmacy in Prints. 
And there's a picture of me in front of the exhibition with my bangs and my little check dress looking, you know, like I can't wait till I can get to the pavilion of chocolate. There was no <laughs> there pavilion was a- of chocolate back then, just <laughs> a lot of prints. But, um, um, you know, I remember that was... Um, the architect Moshe Safdi, the then young architect, up and coming architect Moshe Safdi, had created a modular building called Habitat. That there. was his great claim to fame. And can I tell his you, great claim to fame. I always wanted to rewrite the Mr. Softy theme for the ice cream truck to be about <laughs> yeah. Moshe Safdi. Da 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 Moshe Safdi. Don't you think that would be a great way to teach architecture to kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or trick them into um, trick them into imagine, thinking they should learn about modernism and not imagine, have any ice cream. Exactly. Imagine their crestfallen faces. <laughs> right. Mommy, I thought we were going to be learning about. I thought I'd be eating on ice cream. I thought it was soft serve. Yeah, but it's modular. Well, you think back about that architecture, it kind of looked like soft serve, didn't it? A lot of it did. Uh, But softies was very. It was very soft serve. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I guess it was sort of like stacked up in a way. It was. It was like a little bit more like an ice cream sandwich in a way. If you're making, if you're trying to make a uh, an ice cream treat metaphor out of it, I remember it really keenly because. the very first assignment we had in um, my 10th grade art class, I remember. Oh, is this going to involve someone was, punching you in the nose again? No one punched me. No, no. Okay. I, I escaped this, uh, this whole thing unscathed. Just trying to um, warn the our very, the, the very first um, assignment I had was uh, my teacher, Mr. Kosis, using a uh, you know a carousel projector, put up a big slide of that was a really intricate photograph of, indeed, Habitat 67 designed by Moshe Safdie, which was sort of a challenge to how well could you render under, uh, you know, two-point perspective. It's just nothing but cubes, cubes, cubes all the way down and all the way up and all the way across. That was my only experience of that was this kind of day-long submersion and trying to draw this uh, one view of that one particular pavilion there. But it really was a remarkable place. And I think, uh, you know, we just celebrated the um, the 50th anniversary of the uh, last World's Fair in New York City, memorialized now mostly by the, uh, the big uh, globe. stuff that's... The big globe that is... M- probably better known as a backdrop for the Men in Black movies now than it is for anything yeah, else. Yeah, but you know, those things, I mean, they are iconic in a way that nothing is iconic because they're they're real, they're three-dimensional, and they're, they, they have a sense of place. I mean, I have to say, and it sounds corny to say it in this context, but it makes me think of it, that when you go to Paris and you look at the Eiffel Tower... It's just jaw-droppingly amazing that that thing existed for an exposition. It was yeah, put yeah. up. And it's still, it so staggers the mind because the scale of it is so unto its own. I mean, it just doesn't have any relationship to anything else in the city of Paris, nor does that globe outside. I think it's in Queens on the way to the airport. Yeah, you yeah, see yeah, that yeah. thing. But they're so beautiful. They're basically pieces of sculpture that are so redolent of their period. Yeah, and, and the Eiffel Tower, it's often said, never would have been approved if people would have known it would be lasting well into the 21st century. Uh, I mean, as a uh, person who spent a lot of time in Paris, you can testify both to its alluring power as an icon, but also to the stories that uh, are still repeated that when it was put up, it was just despised. And maybe that's also part of their appeal. These visual things, they become kind of icons. They become little sort of metaphors. I mean, you know, if you were asked to represent Paris in, you know, three seconds, you would draw the Eiffel Tower. You know, it's this little sort of slightly ornamental triangulated piece of geometry that has come to represent an entire culture, Uh, you know, and it's 150 years later and we still think about it. Um, so, So there you are in Milan 
city known for its industrialism. It's the, you know, Italy is this sort of beautiful place to go and languish and eat pasta and look at Umbria and look at the villas and look at incredible history and be in Venice. And, and then there's Milan. Milan is kind of the, the kind of the workhorse of Italy. So you go to Milan and you go to this thing and it's all about food, which is of course an incredible Italian conceit, but it's about food in the interest of what? Design, experience, the physicality of going to these pavilions and seeing the sort of national representation of food in the context of, of being there all together so you can get this kind of larger gestalt, but you are in Milan. Do you feel that if you'd looked at it online or watched the video or waited for the article in uh, some magazine, you would have had the same experience? Was there something about the physicality of being there and walking through those walls of chocolate and various things that gave you a different sense of, of, of what was going on? I mean, any iconic kind of like urban or architectural experience, you can look at pictures, you can go online and visit websites, but I think there is something really powerful about spending physical time in a place. And I think um, there were children there who I'm sure this was like making a huge impression on. You know, they, the school kids go through there constantly from uh, certainly all over um, northern Italy and uh, all over Europe. And they kind of like take tours. And it sort of is, uh, they, it's got to surpass anything that could happen in a classroom. And I think, um, you know, history sort of sorts out what, what's romanticized about these things. I mean, at the time of the 64, 65 World's Fair, people just thought that it was um, a debacle compared with the, uh, the romance that was associated with the Depression era World's Fair. That was seen, that was bathed in this kind of golden aura. And if you look at pictures of it, they're all beautiful kind of like black and white pictures and had all this incredible architecture by people like Norman Bel Geddes and things like that, you know. And I think the uh, early 60s ones sort of seemed comparatively kind of crass and commercial and sort of a, like a miss. But now we look back at it 50 years later and it does seem like it's some kind of a exuberant expression of um, a particularly New York and American kind of enthusiasm. And indeed, some of the restaurants that started there actually went on to kind of take root in first in New York and and then kind of influence uh, eating and cuisine all over the world. So maybe, you know, Milan actually got it exactly right by focusing on the food, which along with the architecture tends to be the, uh, the cultural artifact that stands the most chance of kind of penetrating and propagating and being remembered going on. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode of Design Observer is sponsored by Moo, which helps you stand out and look great. Moo is a new stationery collection, Moo Letterpress, that combines classic craftsmanship and the modern print technology Moo is known for. You can see examples of Moo Letterpress at moo.com. From Milano to Metaphor, I think both of us noticed this uh, really interesting piece that a writer and linguist named Michael Arard uh, posted recently. He's written for Design Observer, but this was on the website Eon. And it was about his work as a designer of metaphors, in a way. And it was, it was really interesting that he sort of both considered it like a design process and sort of saw part of what he did as a writer as being a, a designer of metaphors. And he states the purpose of metaphors very clearly as being a, um, a way that we help people understand the unfamiliar. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, is there a difference between being a, like a writer and a metaphor designer, or can you just charge more for the latter? <laughs> 
I think if someone could tell me that that could be my my job, I I, I might just drop everything and go do that like immediately. I, I think it is the single most powerful thing. He writes this; it's a wonderful article because he's he's actually not a designer, right? He's a linguist and he's a, a kind of a scholar of words. And but he's interested in the idea that you can completely and he he did he worked full time as a metaphor designer at a, a think tank in Washington. And he writes about the history of this, and, and we'll put a link on our website. But the idea that language in the context of that which is visual and, and the visual being relative to something else which can be deeply philosophical or broad or historical or really anything, that you can completely shift the emphasis. So, you know, if it's design, the word design becomes kind of a decorative conceit. It's like we're shaping it, we're molding it, we're, we're going to redistribute it across a platform, and maybe you'll think that this metaphor is useful in a different kind of way. But when you think about it in the context of government or you think about it in the context of precedent and law, I mean, somebody who sees something that is a drinking vessel as a vessel for distributing other kinds of ideas, I mean, suddenly there's enormous power in the use of a metaphor and how it is deployed across a culture. And I think that's the point he makes. So when I read this article, and I don't know how you felt about this, Michael, but I immediately thought about the very early days of Apple and people like Susan Kerr. So Susan Kerr, mm -hmm. yep. for people who don't know, was, is a woman who had this very unlikely role at Apple in, like, 1983. Her job was to design, to figure out. I don't even think she, she came in as a designer, but her job was to figure out what was the visual representation of the idea that Apple wanted to get across. So, for example, she designed the very first little picture of a Macintosh with a smile inside, a guy with a smiley face inside, right? That became, the, yep. you know, the Macintosh logo. She designed the first file folders, the idea that we put our stuff in a thing that looked like a manila folder. The, you know, yep. the conceit yep. of that, that is a visual metaphor. And so, in fact, as it turns out, as I've learned since, because I've had, as you've had, many, many students over the years who were not uh, educated uniquely in the United States, file folders actually look very different in Germany. And in yep, Paris yep. and in, yep. in, in India, right? And so suddenly, here was this extremely westernized symbol language, uh, a sort of a set of hieroglyphics that were metaphors, metaphors based on when we want to organize something, we stick it in a folder. Our folders have tabs. German folders yep. don't have tabs. They're actually yep. differently proportioned. So you realize over time when you read about metaphors that they may have visual impulses and representations, but they wield a tremendous amount of power. The thing that I found curious about Michael's piece is that um, it was all about isolating just the idea of the metaphor as the kind of like key thing that could shape understanding. And I find as a designer, I traffic in metaphor constantly, but a lot of times, I guess they're, maybe they're inherently unstable, but I find I'll be sort of like, um, you know, designing something that has a certain shape or a certain characteristic, and I need to give people a way of understanding why I made those visual choices. And a lot of times you simply have to relate it to something they already know and persuade them that the audience that they're trying to communicate with will understand that similarly. Our common understanding of what visual metaphors mean 
as we can make ourselves believe them, whether it's a file folder or something else, is sort of what actually is the glue that holds a lot of graphic design specifically together. And I'm thinking, you know, for instance, Massimo Vignelli, uh, speaking of Milano, used to tell this story of working with an Italian client. It was um, an Italian car company, I believe. I won't name who they were, but he was redoing their identity system and uh, decided that he wanted to make their corporate color be black. And um, he talked about, you know, the part of the presentation would come up and he'd say, they'd say, well, what's the corporate color? And he says, here's my suggestion. The corporate color is black. And like, and they would all sort of like uh, go, oh, oh, mama mia. There's like a shrinking away black, you know, it's like the horror, you know, and sort of like, you know, uh, it's just made every instrument. And he said, no, 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 not black like funerals, black like black tie, elegant black, black like a shiny piano, black like a tuxedo. And then they're all like, ah, fantastic, yeah, elegant black. You know, so it's very funny. It's just a matter of whether it's, you know, black like a death shroud or black like a tuxedo, it's exactly the same color. And um, that metaphoric uh, uh, meaning of it, whether it's metaphor or simile or what it is, is the thing that actually is helping people get their mind around it. In fact, some of the cultural appropriation of a metaphor is not universal. And designers tend to think that what we do, making complex things clear, is universal. But it is not. You know, and um, talking about the development of these kind of quests for a universal language, I uh, was struck by um, a link someone passed me that was a video introducing what Google is proposing as their design language, which uh, I thought was really, I found it just as a designer, an enthralling video. Did you see it? Enthralling would not have been my word. I found it kind of <laughs> vexing, um, kind of <laughs> comical. No, no, no. Uh, no, no. I, can, you, can you describe what the, uh, what the premise of this thing is first for our okay. listeners? So the premise is this, that, that Google has put out this video that actually got quite a bit of criticism, a wonderful piece by Ann Quito, writing in Quartz, that we'll put on our website, rating uh, Google for not finding a better way of explaining what is something called material design. Material design. And their material view design. of material design is kind of the, the visual choices, the taxonomies, the perspectives, the, the practices, the sort of best practices around the representation of something that is philosophically something we can understand and reference as being two-dimensional, even though it's not. It's on the screen, uh, so it's the shadow on a piece of paper. It's how a button reacts when you push it. These are things that have long been in play and been in, uh, questioned by user interface designers. And I think on one level, it seemed um, a, a little late to be coming in and assuming that the gospel was written by them. To be fair, Anquito's piece was, was very critical of and, and kind of brilliantly skewering of the video that is rapidly cut between designers, who, all of whom, who, uh, you know, to give them credit, they all seemed very articulate. But um, You'll probably have to ask me this a couple times. So material design is a, is a system for designing interfaces. Designing, designing. Maybe it's maybe it's too complex of an idea. I think it's actually quite self-deprecating and kind of refreshingly bullshit-free. At the very beginning, um, you see each of them haltingly trying to explain what material design is, and in each case, words fail them. And I think it's actually, as opposed to these kind of like, you found it likes, charming, but she found it moronic. Oh, uh, real? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to the world of uh, design, I guess. In fact, moronic where, uh, was actually an M word used in the title of her article. 
I think it's an important point, though. How does a designer talk to someone who's not a designer about this thing that they, you know, talk about and explain as being extremely critical to the way we use machines? And and one thing that I will say for them that that when you watch it, it's, it, it's long. I mean, long in the age of Vine, it's six or seven minutes. They describe quite eloquently, I think, the fact that the reason they are zeroing in on finding this common ground is so that other people will then use it and grow it and, and it will sort of you know metastasize into some new cultural thing, which is at once a kind of false innocence about the fact that they're creating the parameters. They're basically creating the precedent. I kept thinking about this in terms of legal precedent, right? In terms of, you know, if you create a system, you, you decide the alphabet's always only going to be 26 letters. You decide that the only way you can show something that has a shadow has to be at a 45-degree angle. Other people then have to agree to that. I mean, who that's a covenant. We were talking a moment ago about, about covenants, about the implicit understanding that design has to operate in this international way that is understood by all. So in a sense, this is a different kind of international language, right? I mean, they yeah, really want people yeah. to understand that. And one thing I think is really beautiful that they did that I, I, I want to do a little shout out to them, which, which just made me want to go play in their sandbox, which was they're literally doing these very analog studies of what shadows yeah, look yeah. like, right? And they're doing it with paper. So it's this yeah. completely reverse engineered mechanism where they're looking at what the screen can do how legible, readable, understandable can be across a wide swath of the population. But the models they're building are extremely primitive. They're building them out of paper. Yeah, and, and they have adjustable lamps that they're kind of tilting at different it's angles kind of to get exactly the right shadows. No, I, th I thought it was – I do not share uh, – your uh, cynicism about this, nor uh, Ann Keto's That's uh, my job. kind of like whore about it. I thought that it was actually, um, you know, a, a really interesting answer to a couple of different questions. One question is, you know, if they're going to have a bunch of developers out there creating applications and things that are meant to be compatible with the Google platform, how can they actually lay down some parameters so that it all sort of, you know, goes together? Secondly, I think in the world of, you know, user experience design, UX design, you know, this idea of expectability and habituation is just so important, you know, and hence Susan Kerr's slightly unwitting kind of uh, presence at the birth of so many conventions. You know, if you want to drag something to the trash, it has to look like some version of a trash can. And right. that isn't because it could have looked a lot of different ways, but uh, she picked that metaphor back then, and we've been living with it for decades now in different forms. And I think um, what they were trying to do, I think, is just be deliberate about, you know, what happens when you press a button, how do we know which thing is on top of another thing and instead of just kind of like having a bunch of people sort of like grope towards it hesitantly and kind of make a lot of different kind of contradictory kind of directions on the way just trying to put down some guidelines out there and say it is what it is you know and um and i don't think it's they're not trying to say this is the, the whole world has to look that way i think they're just saying that google has to look that way that remains to be seen because they say it's good you know today <laughs> google tomorrow the world right we don't know <laughs> but that's the thing about precedent you don't know it seemed like a good idea at the time you don't know yeah. what's going to cement itself in the sort of larger consciousness and visual set of expectations of the of the broader demographic, which in the case of the internet is kind of everybody who has, you know, a connection. Um, I was reminded of, we had a student a uh, number of years ago at Yale, you may remember, named Alex Lin. Alex Lin was mm -hmm. my, I was his thesis advisor, and he was fascinated with 
how metaphor was visual and to what extent it, it, it kind of imposed itself into our lives. And he did this thesis. I believe the title of his thesis was something, 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 and the subtitle was Myths, Metaphor, and Mold. And the reason it was Myths, Metaphor, and Mold is that he, he built an interface that had actual file folders. And if you didn't click on the file folder for a couple of days, it would start to grow mold spores. Right. So part of the exploration was screen-based, really pushing the kind of visual dynamic of what it was, how we interacted physically and emotionally, sociologically with these things that were completely two-dimensional and living on the screen. The other thing he did that was equally marvelous is he took the actual conventions of the domain of that which is the rectangular canvas in front of us that's backlit, and he built these things out of things like balsa wood. So he built enormous rooms full of sliding control bars and icons. He literally, he wanted to understand what it was to look at a metaphor that had a visual representation and to build it 3D out of something like pipe cleaners, and I don't know what he was using. But it was the dual exploration of the screen's metaphor and the physicality of the metaphor once taken out of the screen that combined created this very, very compelling thesis project, and uh, I never forgot it. Don't know where you are now, Alex, but shout out to Alex Lynn, wherever he is. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, one thing about metaphors, and the thing that's dangerous about metaphors is that the effective ones tend to be very reductive, you know, and I think uh, that's true. You know, Michael Arard sort of makes that implication. He makes, and I that, think, um, he makes that point. Yeah, and I think also even if you think about the way Massimo Vignelli, uh, you know, was discussing them to his uh, client, you know, they're reductive and somewhat manipulative. You know, here, think of this this way. When I say this, you're going to forever see black and think of a tuxedo regardless of any other of the rich kinds of um, world of associations that could be conjured up by these things. And I think what's interesting about design is sort of the fact that um, locking down the meaning of something doesn't seem to work forever. Metaphors get exhausted. As the world becomes familiar with them, suddenly the world changes. And um, if Google or anyone tries to invent a universal language today, there's going to be a conference room full of people five years from now saying, oh, that just looks so 2015, though. You it's know? true. And it's the other thing is that it's very re restrictive. I mean, it's one thing to choose something to be a vessel into which you know, anything that is a container will be square. You can make that kind of ex-cathedra statement and hope that it, it sticks. I mean, philosophically, the bigger concern, and this is perhaps a conversation for a future podcast, is what happens when we map our expectations of the future world against a reality that is, ex in fact, extremely myopic? So, for example, any kind of biological synthetic view of cloning in our own image. Uh, virtual reality headsets. They speak of a kind of hubris and an expectation that I think is not necessarily to your excellent point, Michael. It's destabilizing to assume that they are stable. These things are going to continue to change. And one of the things to come back to, I know I said I was vexed by it, but one of the things I liked about these people in material design is that they're actually not doing that. They're reducing it to components that are much more universal and much more modern, like geometry, like a 45-degree yeah. shadow, like a square and a circle. And it may be a button today, but tomorrow it might be something quite different. And I think that they're looking at creating not just a set of metaphors, but a kind of uh, language that is a vocabulary that's expansive and, if not manipulative, which can be for pernicious reasons or for positive reasons, uh, at least something that is potentially of use to other people and can be built upon by future designers and future users and future readers and students and all sorts of people. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, in a way, that's the ultimate design challenge, not 
designing a closed system which kind of locks down everything today tomorrow and forever but kind of creates a system that other people can participate in and enrich and help evolve even beyond what his creators uh, imagined even doesn't if it doesn't begin often. with them exactly the observatory is a podcast from design observer our website is designobserver.com you can find links there to things we discussed, including Michael Erard's piece on designing metaphors and a lot of other cool stuff. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. A big thank you to Moo for sponsoring this episode. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon. <laughs>